Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Event of last week was the fact that she died at 96, and some people have said that they actually can't believe it happened almost because she was she's always been their queen. Um, and this is true, living to 96 and being in power, sorry, not in power, in office or for 70, over 70 years, I think for a great number of um, of Britons, she she was she was the only queen. She was the only uh, monarch. But I'd like to ask a colleague of mine, Nicholas Lorimer, who you've ha- heard before, host of the Daily Friends show, to chat about where what the monarchy does and its relationship to the other organs of government in Britain in the UK. Nick, well, welcome to the show. It's very good to be here. My sense is that a lot of there is some misunderstanding as to what the Queen's role in political life is. And so there tends to be, for those who are on the more disgruntled side, a tendency to see her as a sort of ruling figure that has cast her decisions upon the United Kingdom and the former dominions, the Commonwealth, and that with her death comes a change in power that that. that would have an impact on the world and on those entities. What, in fact, is the position of the monarchy? So the British monarchy is a very strange thing to sort of explain to people because it's simultaneously been, in many ways, reinvented uh, by Queen Elizabeth um, to become a quite a modern institution which very much has its eye on its place in the modern political system. And at the same time, it's this very ancient institution that goes back uh, over a thousand years. And so it's sort of its, its position is a little bit difficult to explain, but really what it is, is it is a ceremonial embodiment of the state. It's the idea that this one person is the central figurehead for the country in many ways. Uh, so, for an example, uh, South Africa would put that in, in the president, President Sir Ramaphosa as the head of state. Some countries like Germany have a, a president who has very little power, but is the sort of ceremonial head of state there, although he's elected in Britain that head of state, that person who is supposed to be ultimately the representative, the ribbon cutter, the function opener, the speech giver, um, the 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 unobjectionable uh, version of, a, of, of the nation uh, is the queen. And so she has, in theory, an enormous amount of power because everything in the British government is done in her name. She's also the head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. However, in reality, this, uh, following a, a historical process that's been going on for literally hundreds of years, the Queen actually has absolutely no power and does precisely what Parliament tells her to do. And in fact, one of the uh, many ways that Queen Elizabeth, I think, was uh, very skilled um, as as a modern monarch was that she was very good at distancing herself from the politics of her country. So there have been times in recent years when uh, monarchs uh, have have uh, around the world, because there are still a few left, um, for example, in Spain, have played quite important roles in the politics of their country. So, for example, the, the monarch in Spain helped to, to transition the country away from uh, Franco, that was the fascist dictator in Spain, um, his rule towards a more democratic system. Um, in places like Thailand, the king still has a lot of power. But in the UK, the queen was very good at sort of staying above it all. She really focused on her duty as a representative of the state. And that meant that she never sort of expressed an opinion. She never Mm. expressed an opinion other than to say, um, you know, keep going. This is what it means to be British. And 
I'm, I'm, she was she was completely separated from the party political process, and I think this is one of the uh, one of the reasons why she has been able to be quite a popular figure um, in in Britain, even amongst people on the left who who often are uh, you know not so well disposed towards monarchies in general. Mm. They have this feeling that she was still someone to be respected, someone to be taken seriously as this kind of impartial figurehead. Um, perhaps the key, one of the key things about uh, Queen Elizabeth is that through, and, and this probably originated from, let's say, the older side of her reign, the, the, the early 50s, uh, the 40s, the 50s, she had a dignity that carried, she, she was always dignified. She, she didn't, I, not that I can recall, but she didn't in public show any favoritism or uh, opinion one way or the other. As you say, she held herself above the fray, and but it was that sense of dignity that she managed to carry off without be, really being seen to be aligned to the elites or the working class or anything else. And I think that might have been part of her significant right. success. Uh, there was a great insight I heard uh, on another <clears throat> on a podcast recently, which was talking about her life and how she never um, became she never became a celebrity in the way that almost every modern figure does, and how there's a great temptation, particularly in the social media age, for um, people who already have a profile like those in the royal family to become celebrities, where it's kind of all about the glitz and the glam. And the, She was much more reserved. I mean, she never gave interviews to the media, for example. She had a very controlled, sort of aloof presence, um, which I think many people would be scared to do because they'd say, oh, it makes you look out of touch. But I think what it, it kind of did was it maintained that mystique around the royal family, around the monarch, um, which is actually very important to how a monarchy works because if it's, you know, if she gives interviews and she talks about what she had for breakfast every day and, you know, what she thinks of this politician, that politician, that whole sort of illusion of her pretending to be this this sort of figure who's kind of, you know, not almost a human being but a, a an embodiment of a country um, is shattered. And then you sort of just realize, oh, she's just a nice old lady with good manners, mm. um, which <laughs> which is, I think, not really what, what a monarch should be. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, she she certainly didn't, uh, you know, obviously, particularly in older age, she, she wasn't a big presence physically. Um, but I think, I, I don't know if you, if you recall when she, when Nelson Mandela met her, um, uh, they, they, they got on famously and, and she's known, she was known for her, for her wit and and interestingly, her the fact that she was very educated on issues politically, and I think as a as a as a young as a young girl or a woman would not would not necessarily have got the education that it, that girls would have expected to receive today. Um, so she she's made an enormous amount out of that um, out of her experience her experience of dealing with uh, with with people at both at the sort of diplomatic presidential level on the one hand, and literally at street level um, on the other. From what you say about her essentially holding no power, does this mean that she does not in any way um, interfere with the way the, the parliament, is, uh, parliament operates um, or, 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 or the civil service? They entirely act within the mandate given to them through the voters. Right. Um, so, you know, in theory, she has a sort of moral or cultural power. 
Um, but because she was very good at not sort of getting wading into those great cultural wars that have uh, riven every society on earth in the last couple of years, um, she's never really, I think, exercised that power. And in doing so, has only strengthened her. Uh, kind of feels like the wrong word to use, but I, I can't think of another one. Brand, right? Mm. Um, so I think I think she was very good at that. And so there's, it's very interesting seeing that some people have very aggressively attacked her. Um, after her death, saying that, you know, she was this uh, symbol of a ancient colonial institution that was, uh, you know, responsible for the oppression of millions of people. And so they weren't going to shed any tears over her death. But I think this is really mistaken for a number of reasons, one of which is that uh, during her reign, Britain's empire was decolonized. So mm -hmm. it's kind of strange to go after her for that. But secondly, you know, it's not the, the whole point of a monarch is that she's not supposed to be at odds, really, with her government, at least in the model of monarchy that mm. Elizabeth herself developed. Um, she does, as the elected government tells her to do. And in this case, she represented her country without expressing opinion on this or that. Um, and that's because it wasn't her job to express her mm. opinion on this or that. It's a very strange thing, I think, being a modern monarch. You know, as as kind of modern free people, we don't we don't necessarily kind of get this obligation that's placed upon your shoulders. She never really um, had a choice other than mm. by doing the very disruptive and disgraceful thing in, in the eyes of her family of abdicating. Mm. The only other option was just to do her duty. Uh, and I don't think there's a lot of people alive today who quite have that experience where you, you wake up and you realize that you're not going to be able to choose what job you do today or, or, or who you're going to marry or all that kind of thing. It's you're very, you're captured by the life of your position. And mm. uh, I think that that it's it's sort of slightly dystopian in a way, um, despite all the luxury and the and the and the wealth and the esteem placed upon mm. her, and yet she kind of shouldered that burden and she never really, she never really said a misspoken word, mm. um, she never complained. Well, uh, just to pick up on the issue of of decolonization, uh, her critics talk about you know the, the bloody periods of period of decolonization. Yes, to some, obviously to some extent, um, the way. Uh, England went about decolonizing and, and often just shed, uh, abandoning countries and which did uh, collapse into bloodshed and and uh, and warfare essentially um one has the impression that she was you know the 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 exterminions meant something to her but she she they meant something to her in the sense of the commonwealth in that she worked very hard to 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 bolster what the the Commonwealth, because the common and, and interestingly the Commonwealth is based on the fact that it didn't matter how small or poor a country belonging to the Commonwealth was, each country within the Commonwealth had the same status. And she felt a great proponent of of the Commonwealth. And it's it's an interesting. I find it interesting that she was a proponent, and she was a proponent of a sentient institution that gave equal rec equal recognition, which is a very modern. Phenomenon. Right. The Commonwealth is this quite amazing institution because it sort of grows directly out of the British Empire. Although, mm. interestingly enough, uh, you know, there are other countries that have joined the Commonwealth since mm. that were never colonized by Britain. But it, it, it was this, it's this institution and today. It does things like it organizes scholarships and it has sort of uh, sports games and it's ways for countries to interact with each other. It's, a, I, I think, a fairly positive and popular platform, which is why mm. some countries have decided to join it. Um, and I think that Elizabeth perhaps saw uh, in her in her reign that this was 
I think in many ways the legacy that she would want to leave behind. Uh, it's a recognition that these countries were all tied together by a past, which in some, for some was, you know, some cases was good, some cases was very traumatic. Um, and she saw that this institution would be a way to keep the legacy of her family alive in a much more positive way than, you mm. know, sort of empires going around conquering things. Mm. Uh, this is a way to unite countries across the, the, the former Anglosphere, the former British Empire, and sort of build a good fellowship and, and, and common understanding, I think, between all the peoples here. And, and as you say, you know, this means that people from Ghana get to interact with people from India, with people from the UK, with people from Belize. Um, it's quite an interesting institution. And I think it has uh, worked hard. She worked hard to develop a good reputation for it. Yeah, one almost gets the impression that the naysayers, there's something I think fairly sad about centering your response to the situation of her death around period that for many was dreadful, but thing, things change and she very much went with the change and it, it meant something to her. And so whatever it was, she essentially was an agent of change and to some extent egalitarianism. I mean, uh, funny, I was just looking at the list of which countries are in the uh, Commonwealth. And what's interesting is that most of those who at some point left, um, the most recent is Barbados, and they, they decided to become a republic. But almost all that, that left at some point or were chucked out applied to come back. Uh, and then you have the, the, the sort of lovely thing of countries, as you say, who were never part of the Commonwealth, like Rwanda and Mozambique, applying, I think I think there was Gabon, I might have been, I can't remember. But you know, these are these are either Portuguese speaking or came from Portuguese speaking empires or French speaking have asked to join the Commonwealth. And and the interesting thing about it is that membership of the Commonwealth depends on um, your your human rights record, amongst other things, and how you treat your own people. And Rwanda initially wasn't allowed in for that reason. So surely, you know, it, it, it's it's much more appropriate to recognise the move to something that is would truly accord with 21st century mores than to fixate um, on literally on, on history. You don't move forward. Right. I mean, this is the kind of, I, I guess, in a sense, that the, the fact that she, she really did triumph in becoming a symbol of her country is that I feel like a lot of the people who've attacked her um, are really just attacking the UK and its history. Mm. And that's because she was so good at being a symbol of the UK. Because when you look at her own record, there's not much uh, that can be said there. I think the one sort of um, strange political event in her entire reign was when the uh, Prime Minister, or I think it was the Prime Minister of Australia, and I apologise if I made a mistake here, um, was replaced by the Governor-General, who is an appointee of the, the Queen, at least in theory, in Australia. But that was... A decision that, it, uh, although it was done in her name, it later turned out um, she had not been told about uh, precisely so that she wouldn't essentially have dirty hands um, mm. and, and, and have to sully her reputation by getting involved in politics. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, you know, she has this incredible legacy. And I think I, I, I saw someone talking online about how she, she was the Queen of England um, for the entire life of seven billion people on Earth. Mm. Mm. which is, is quite something. She was a sort of fixture in global politics. And I really do wonder whether her children um, and grandchildren will be able to walk the lines that she did do as, as well as she has. Mm. Um, she was the queen. There are still other queens in Europe, but she when you say the, the queen, queen, right, everyone knows who you're talking about. You're talking mm. about Queen Elizabeth II.
Now, I must say, it, 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 it sounds rather strange to hear commentators refer to him as King Charles III. I mean, somehow, it does take you back to a time when kings right. lost their heads. And Brit Yeah, Britain and has not had a good time with uh, kings called Charles, so I don't really know. He could have chosen <laughs> any of his four names by which to be known, um, but he chose Charles, and I don't know if that was the greatest idea, but maybe he's hoping to... I think he's a very likable man. I think he's a caring man. I think the uh, customs and the duty are part of his persona and he would follow those through. Um, I think he'd probably come across as a, as a warmer person than, than, uh, than the Queen was um, publicly and emotionally, but it's, it's difficult to see he would, he would steer the line firmly enough to prevent the possible fallout that will result from his children or his grandchildren, who are very much creatures of the, uh, of the 21st century. Right. I mean, it remains to be seen. And, and Charles, he's got in some cases, I think, the benefit of the fact that he, you know, the great scandal of his life is in the rearview mirror. Mm. Um, I don't think he's ever going to top that one. But he still, of course, on the, on the flip side, carries the baggage from that because that was embarrassing. Uh, he, you know, he has this reputation as really not treating Diana very well. Um, his first wife, of course, just embarrassing, weird things about him being being leaked to the press in that period. Um, so at least, you know, it can never... It's probably going to be difficult for it to be worse than that for him if he ever, you know, unless mm. he, I don't know, he shoots someone. Mm. <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, he does, he does hunt, doesn't he? <laughs> right, right, yeah, no, so yes. But yeah, he's he's going to have a difficult time to follow. But I think you know a lot of Britons have made peace with that, even though I don't think he's going to be super popular as king. Um, I, you know, he's got such a great role model, his mother to follow, that if he just doesn't say anything too controversial and he just follows in the footsteps of his mother, he'll find his own groove soon enough. Um, if it all goes to his head and he tries to be a great change agent, I think he is going to run into trouble very quickly um, and that he is going to uh, probably undermine the institution that he's seeking to change and, and mm. <laughs> if he's not careful, see it abolished. Yeah. Because there are, there are, you know, a majority of overwhelming majority of Britons are very happy with the monarchy. Mm. Um, but, you know, a couple of missteps, some uh, some ill thought out comments to the media. And before you know it, you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, and uh, nothing could be more brutal than the uh, than the British media. Um, I'd like to just canvas your thing on something related to Parliament, but a little different. The new Prime Minister, uh, Sorry, I've just got, gone blank on Mrs. Mrs. Trust. Liz Truss. Liz Truss, Liz. She has appointed to the th three of the, the top positions in her in her government, um, in her in her cabinet rather. Shall we say people of colour? And there's been a lot of talk about the fact that it's very diverse to use the modern parlance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But perhaps one of the most interesting things is that it, it's it it perhaps proves the best thing about not caring one way or the other about skin color, because as one commentator said, they may not they may not be white. Diversity from a sort of experiential, academic, political philosophy point of view, they really, they're, there's not diversity. There are conservatives with conservative views who went to largely private private schools. And so the, the sort of emphasis on, on color is, is a little bit, you know, it's kind of it's something actually we should take take a leaf out of and pay less right. attention there's, to. I think there's two things we can take from this, which is that you know when we say we want 
we like diversity, we want diversity, what do we actually want? Do we want people who look different from each other? Do we want people who are different from each other in some sort of fundamental way? And that means, you know, more than skin deep. You can have two white people who are far more different than a white and a black person who went to the same school, went to the same university, studied the same thing, who had the same religious outlook or the same uh, political background. Um, and so that's the first lesson is, you know, what, what do we mean we want diversity? Do we want just diversity of color or do we want diversity of thought, opinion, worldview, that kind of thing? In which case, that's a much harder thing to get, actually. Mm. Um, and secondly, it also shows that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who say that if you don't have if you don't have a system which forces diversity, if you don't have quotas, if you don't have an emphasis on always pushing into people position people into positions because of the way they look or the demographic they represent, that that'll never happen. Um, that the every that everything will be, continue to be uh, dominated by the same group of people who have always dominated things. But I think what really has been shown by this cabin here is that's not true. Uh, everyone here ended up in their positions because of their track record or because of the politics that's going on behind the scenes there, what faction they supported, where they supported the prime minister, all that. And very little has to do with their race. Mm. And we've achieved, the, the British have achieved in this sense, diversity in their government without ever having to adopt a policy of quotas or anything like mm. that. And I think that that's also an important lesson is that you can really, um, you can reach, reach a goal of, of, of transformation uh, to use a very loaded South African word, um, without ordering people to do so and threatening them with the stick if they don't do it. In fact, uh, just, just on a final note, I think uh, the most interesting thing is uh, many of the sorry, uh, politicians of colour in the in the in the UK Parliament were either not born in the UK or were born in the UK of parents who come from Commonwealth countries. And this is a so great example of the way that Britain has changed um it's gone from being a sort of uh this this global empire to being this complicated diverse culture and society which has incorporated many of the cultures and peoples of its former empire um and while it has uh, left its mark on those countries those people have also left its mark on on britain and and mm. in many ways made the modern country that it is today uh and and uh, the commonwealth continues to be one of the ways in which that uh, that transfer continues to happen, that, that of people moving to the UK, of adding to it and becoming part of its fabric um, and creating the modern British people who are uh, one of the best educated, wealthiest, and by many metrics, a well-off people in the world. And I think that, that if anything, uh, Queen Elizabeth, she didn't, I don't think she necessarily had the direct hand in that, obviously, because she doesn't have that much power, but she certainly, that was the outcome of her reign. Mm. was that uh, Britain was transformed into a country that is still relevant, despite the fact that it is a small series of islands off the north coast of Europe mm. um, and is still, by most accounts, a very nice place to live for people from all over the world. Nick, other than the fact that generally their weather is less than desirable, thank you very much for coming on and uh, looking at this issue with us and the, delving into the differences between the various roles played in, in and outside of Parliament, and perhaps we can only wish uh, King Charles III all the best, and God save the King.